You can turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1, 35. It will be on the screen. Um, it will be good for you if you have a Bible or a Bible app to have it in your hand so that you can follow along, linger over words, and uh, so I can point to it easier. Um, to pull out some truths here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there it is. <laughs> John one thirty-five. The next day, again, John, the baptizer, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. And said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, um, just by way of caveat introduction, you may notice that the text, uh, the message today, maybe more than normal, is going to jump around a little bit in the whole book uh, and be maybe seem more loosely connected to the text we just read. Um, I want to explain that to reassure you that it's deeply connected to the text we just read. As I was studying and praying this week about this text uh, and how God would have me preach to you, I began tugging on the threads of these words and ideas that John carefully lays down by the Spirit's inspiration. And I think, in fact, I'm quite certain, the main point of this text is most clearly seen in light of the whole book. So we are going to jump to the end and skim through the middle of John. We're going to take all that John has into consideration, because like John, I just don't believe in, you know, spoilers being a bad thing. Um, John front loads in his gospel the information about who Jesus is. So I don't mind front loading as well. We are going to be talking about following Jesus today and what that means, which is the deepest possible field of exploration and the most basic wide open thing that you could invite someone to do. And John, the author's perspective on following Jesus is uh, it's unique. It's uniquely presented. In the Bible, it's really important what John's saying about following him. And it's going to take expanding our view of the text um, to encompass some broader passages to get at it. So um, I did prepare a nine-point sermon on this and then mercifully sliced it down to the normal three. So you're welcome in advance for that one. Um, Basically, it's going to go like this. Good news, bad news, great news. That's roughly the outline. So let me just pray for the help of the Spirit now. 
Holy Father, we ask that you would command to us what you will, and then will what you command. Speak to us today through your word, with power, that we may hear your voice, and may you give us, through your speaking and through your spirit, the power to follow, for your glory. Help me to be clear, help me to be concise, and open our hearts and ears to hear your your word today. Amen. Amen. Now, point number one, the good news, the invitation to follow Jesus is wide open. This introduction of Jesus. So this is, you know, John 1, we've had this huge view. This is the word of God. This is the one who was with God and was God. He's, you know, all of these things. Uh, And now this is the first time we're really meeting Jesus, the, the guy. Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who can walk down the street and be pointed at. Oh, look, there he goes. Behold, that's him. Look, the Lamb of God. So immediately when we meet Jesus, what strikes me is that we're also meeting his disciples. We don't get an introduction to Jesus apart from the introduction to his followers because Jesus did not parachute down into history to accomplish a heroic quest on his own and then get beamed back up to heaven alone. He came to gather a people to himself. And when the Spirit of God descends on him in his baptism and remains, he goes about that work of gathering from that day forward, and he still is gathering. So when John introduces us to Jesus, we also meet five, not the five disciples, but five of his first followers. Who are they? What kind of followers does Jesus have? Well, they're five nobodies, right? From backwater nowheres. None of these guys are impressive. We've got to see this. The the invitation to follow Jesus is wide open from the outset. The first time we meet his followers, we see that there's no entry exam you have to pass. There's no sign that says it must be this high to ride the roller coaster, right? It's wide open. All are welcome. If you've got a heartbeat, you qualify. The arms of Jesus are wide open right now. They always have been to welcome all the weary and all the downtrodden of this world. And in fact, the only way to disqualify yourself from being a follower of Jesus is to deny your weariness and downtroddenness. To say, I don't need him. That's really the only disqualifier. So his early followers, if we keep reading the rest of the Gospels, They include scholars and simpletons. They include militiamen and fishermen. They include wealthy women and prostitutes. They include notorious sinners and mild-mannered nobodies. The whole gamut is represented. Who of us would not fit in in that ragtag bunch? There's a, it's almost, I don't know, a bell curve or an S curve or some sort of mathematical thing of like, when you go to a group of people, the more alike they are, the fewer people fit in, but the more diverse they are, the more you see, actually, I can be like them. There's room for me here. There's room for you following Jesus. It's like that today, still, um, that ragtag motley crew. But in some places, Christianity has a reputation um, that, you know, the church is for the moral 
do-gooders. It's for the people who are well up on their high horse. They've got life all figured out. In other places, Christianity has the reputation of being for the intellectually stunted. Right? These are the people, one penny short of a dollar, who reject science and good old common sense. Neither of those are true. Deep down, at its very foundational core, that's not who we are. That's not what followers of Christ look like. Even today, if you were to survey a reality of who's following Jesus in this world, you'd find ordinary people like us from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of nationalities, ethnicities, who've done all kinds of things. You'd find some of the brightest scientific minds in the world, some of the smartest mathematicians, the greatest philosophers, the greatest producers of art and literature, the most stunning philanthropists, the most compelling politicians, right? The small children and sage octogenarians. Did I pronounce that right? Octo- yeah. Or the, the whole gamut, right? Christianity is not this club for the elite or the good. It's wide. It's wide, wide open. It's part of our charm. It's not built on exclusivity. The church um, is often accused all over the world of being not inclusive enough, isn't it? But where else but the church can you find such a wide variety of perspectives, philosophies, political persuasions, emotional expressions, personality types, all of these things brought together, even in this room, guys, If you think that the person sitting next to you or across the aisle from you in this room thinks like you do about the world, you're profoundly mistaken. Thank God that we're not all exactly alike. Where else can you find people from such a broad, vast spectrum, unified, loving each other, serving each other, sacrificing for each other? I would argue that at its best moments, the church has always been the most inclusive community in the world. Not inclusive, just thinly, right? You know the type of, inclu- uh, the inclusivity I'm talking about, the world's inclusivity that says, anyone's welcome as long as they think like me. That's not inclusive. The only people who find exclusivity Attractive, right? The, the people who find an exclusive club for the elite beautiful are the elite. It's, it's the ones who are already the insiders. The only ones who find a homogenous community of people who all look like each other compelling are the ones who already look like that. But to all the rest of us, neither of those things offers a compelling reality or community, a compelling answer to our questions. But Christianity says there's room for you. The real you, with all of your quirks, <laughs> all of your, uh, the baggage you don't even know you carry, there's room for you. And who wouldn't find that kind of openness beautiful and compelling? But what's most compelling about Christianity is not the community. It is compelling. 
but that's not most compelling. What's compelling about Christianity is the Christ, isn't it? It's not the followers. It's who we follow. And in as much as we follow him, we are a megaphone of love to the world. And in as much as we don't, we are not. So it's not about the community, it's about Jesus. Notice uh, in our text, over and over again, the disciples say, we found him. We found him. We found the Messiah. We found the Christ. We found the one about whom Moses wrote that the law and the prophets testified to. We found him because they were looking for something. Most of us aren't looking for a Christ. Not cognitively. We're not aware of it. But all of us are looking. All of us are seeking. Everyone today is a seeker, though not explicitly for Jesus. So what what are we looking for? What's the world looking for? What are millennials in Los Angeles and Gen Zers in Fayetteville looking for? looking for meaning. We're looking for something to give us a purpose in our lives. We're looking for something beautiful and compelling and true. We're looking for freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from the cycles that we get ourselves into that will kill us. We're looking for a basis for a just society that goes beyond what the two-party political system can offer. We want those things satisfaction, right? To fill the void that we just keep shoving the world's things into, hoping that it finally will one day feel full. So of course we're all seeking, because I see your heads nodding. We all want those things. We're seekers. We're seeking the good life. We just didn't know it was Jesus we were looking for. And neither do the people outside these doors. That's part of our job of saying, come and see, being come and see disciples, is saying, we found him. Jesus offers the most compelling, the most reasonable, rational, and beautiful answer to all of those things that we're looking for. You're not going to find anything more satisfying in all the world. Jesus' followers get access to the power to live the kind of life we all actually want, a life of freedom. You're not free if you're walking around with guilt and shame. Your hands are tied. But if you're forgiven, no one's free like a forgiven person. That's what we want. We want lives of freedom driven by destiny and purpose that mean something and do something in the world and that are marked by a joy that defies circumstances and a peace that defies explanation. Who doesn't want that? Only Jesus followers get that because of the one we follow. So, I, found, I felt a shift in my heart this week because I realized that when I talk about following Jesus, it almost sounds in my head like a drudgery. I almost feel apologetic about it. I'm, so, I'm sorry we have to talk about following Jesus, but, you know. but it's totally the other way around, isn't it? It's the greatest privilege a human could be bestowed. What an honor to be invited to follow Jesus. You see it in Andrew's eagerness, the first named disciple here, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. The minute he lays eyes, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. Andrew's like, I'm in. 
His eagerness is stunning. He just jumps at the chance to follow after Jesus. And then he goes up to Jesus and the the dialogue feels a little strange in our Bibles. Um, If you were in the first century in a Greek-influenced society and you saw somebody walking behind you and when you stop, they stop and then you keep walking and they keep walking and you're like, what's going on? The most natural thing in the world is to turn around and say, yes, can I help you? That's precisely what Jesus says. What is it you're seeking? That's all that means. It's a polite, yes. (laughs) And Andrew's response is a typically also Greek, polite, vague request. It's bold though. It says, where are you staying? In other words, are you busy for dinner? It's the 10th hour, he says. It's 4 p.m. That's for how they count time. It's in, it's late in the afternoon. It's too late to grab a quick coffee and chat about what's on your mind. Andrew is impinging on Jesus's hospitality. He's basically saying, may I please come to your house for dinner, uh, sleep on your couch, and will you be my mentor? And Jesus says, come and see. Imagine the sheer delight in Andrew's heart. He says, this is the Messiah. And he just agreed to mentor me. (laughs) That's unbelievable. It's the coolest thing. Gosh, I hope that moves you. Because you have the same privilege. It's stunning. There's no greater honor than your creator saying to you, come home with me. I'll make you dinner. You can walk with me. I'll teach you. Come on, I'll take you under my wing. And that invitation is wide open to every one of us. All kinds of us. Praise God. From the least to the greatest, Jesus says, follow me. Hmm. That's the good news. Ready for the bad news? Point number two. The invitation is wide open, but the requirements are impossible. Uh, Everyone is welcome. No one is able. Let me explain. I had a friend um, who was a tremendously burly man. (laughs) Huge guy. Some of you will know him. Uh, He spent a lot of time at the gym. And... That was one way he followed Jesus, was physical activity. And he invited me very openly to come with him and work out. Um, So I joined him at the gym, and he said, time for bench press. And I thought, good, that's probably my strongest lift at the time. (laughs) Nate Young's like, that's not. Um, So he started sliding weights onto the barbell, and he kept sliding weights onto the barbell until there was 465 pounds on that thing. And then he laid down and bust out a few reps, actually a few sets at 465 pounds. That's unbelievable. And then he got up and said, your turn. (laughs) Right. That's, it's not going to happen. I was very welcome to join him. I was utterly unable to follow him. You see what I'm getting at? Would-be followers of Jesus need to ask two questions. One is, where are you staying? 
We need to ask Jesus to take us in like Andrew did. Mentor me, Jesus. Let me be your apprentice. The second question is, where are you going? That's important because the way of Jesus is not an easy way. Its destination is paradise. That's the end of the road. Glory. But its way is through the cross. The way of the Christian is always through the cross. There will be suffering in your life as a Christian. You will be called to suffer for Christ. You will be called to take up your cross and follow after him. So turn with me to John 13. John chapter 13, verse 36. Right, so at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Andrew asked Jesus, where are, you, where, where are you staying? At the end of his earthly ministry, John 13 is right, it's his last speech to his friends before he goes to the cross to die. And here's what Simon Peter, Andrew's brother, asks. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. All right. Peter says, I will go where you will go. Jesus says, no, you cannot. Not yet. That's important. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. When times get tough, when stakes are high, I will follow you. And Jesus says, will you? Will you really? Will you follow me when the pressures of the world cave in on you? Will you follow me when the stakes are at their highest? When temptation rises to an unbearable shriek in your heart, will you stay true? Where I am going, you cannot follow me. Not yet. Let me explain this in two stages. This is, this is like the heart of Christianity, guys. So I'm going to use two, um, two sections to explain this. First, we're going to think back to the book of Exodus. Okay. Book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, um, it happens like 3,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. And let's, let's break it into Acts. Act 1, God frees his people from slavery and leads them out of Egypt. Right? Act 2, God went before his people as a pillar of fire and cloud. Do you remember that? Act 3, his people Follow the cloud when it moves and stay put when it stays. That's how for 40 years, as God was leading his people home through the wilderness, that's how they knew how to get home. They go where he goes. They stay when he stays. It must go in that order. One, they're freed. Two, God goes before them. Three, they can follow. The pillar of cloud 
a pillar of fire, blazes in the wilderness of Exodus for the sheer and explicit purpose of pointing us to Jesus of Nazareth. That's why it's there. That's why it happened. Jesus walks before us. He walks in front of us. See, when a disciple says to a rabbi, can I follow you? Or a rabbi says to a disciple, follow me. They mean very literally a disciple would never step in front of their rabbi. You would never move before he moves. That's how they're treating Jesus. Jesus walks before us like that. And we follow him as his disciples. And where he goes, we go. But where he lingers, we linger. We don't go out in front of him. We don't run out ahead of Jesus because we got better ideas on how to do ministry and life. But first, before we follow, he's got to free us. He must lead us out of our slavery. How can we follow if we're chained? So turn with me to John 10 now. Back a few chapters. John chapter 10. Just the first few verses. 1 to 4. Verses um, 1 and 2 of what we're about to read are Jesus explaining how he is the good shepherd, the one they've actually been waiting for. And then verses 3 and 4 talk about discipleship. So Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man's a thief and a robber. In other words, the people who've claimed to be your prophets and your leaders, your messiahs, they climbed in the side door. They're not real, right? He goes on, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Here's where I want to drill down. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and what? Leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Notice the Exodus pattern in verses 3 and 4. First, he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And then the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So back to Peter. Peter says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, you cannot. I haven't led you out yet. I haven't freed you yet. But I will. He says, I haven't died to free you from slavery. I haven't been raised to conquer the death in your own heart and reconcile you to the Father. I haven't sent my Holy Spirit to live in you and give you the power. I haven't led you out. Not yet. So you can't, but afterwards you will. I wonder if any of us resonate with Peter. Actually, I think if you were to go around, you know, any Christian community and say, what apostle do you most resonate with? I think everyone says Peter, because he's a big personality. He's the guy who the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak in the garden. When Jesus' temptation was at its height, an unbearable shriek in his heart, Peter fell asleep. He wants to follow, but he's tired. I wonder if you can relate. 
Or I wonder if you can relate to a life of following Jesus in fits and starts. Maybe it follows the New Year resolution pattern. If so, ask yourself the question. And there's no shame in asking the question. We all must ask it of ourselves. Has the Good Shepherd led you out? Do you know his voice? The voice of our shepherd that our hearts leap at is the one that speaks of the cross. The one that spoke the word justified to your heart. The one that said, let there be faith. And there was faith where before there was none. Have you heard his voice? Have you believed his testimony? Have you been freed? Or are we trying to follow Jesus' teachings, good as they are, on our own strength? Because frankly, we just don't have enough. He's benching way above our class. It's possible to follow Jesus without following Jesus. Maybe in college, you saw some people auditing a class that you were actually taking. It's kind of like that. The invitation for you to follow Jesus is wide open. But on your own strength and on my own strength, we are not able to because we can't go where he's going without his strength. So if we're going to truly take up our cross every day and follow him, then we're going to need power from outside of ourselves. And that takes us to the third point, the great news. Number three, the power is available. And it's free. Not cheap, very costly. But for you, it's free. So here's how to get your heart and hands around that gift and receive that power. Because really, Christianity is about power. And it's almost a word that's been so corrupted in our modern use that we don't want to say it anymore because it makes us feel all kinds of things. But power is the ability to do. That's what the word actually just means. It's your ability to take what you want to do and do it. That's power. So if you want to follow Jesus, but you can't do it, then what you need to fill the gap is power. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Evie. So here's how you do it. Three steps. <laughs> One, you look to Jesus. Two, you confess your sins. Three, receive mercy. I bet you thought I was going to get clever, huh? This is just rudimentary Christianity. Look to Jesus, confess your sins, receive his mercy. That's it. Let me give you two examples. First, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, God was about to task his prophet Isaiah with a stunningly difficult ministry. Maybe the hardest there was up until the ministry of Christ. See, Isaiah was going to go be a preacher to people who would never listen. He would say to ears that were stopped up, hear. And he would say to blind eyes, see. And they wouldn't. It's the, it's the age-old you know, missionary who never gets to see the fruit of his work. And you, you just end your career and like, well, I hope God does something with that because I didn't see a flicker of light. And then to top it all off, 
Isaiah was brutally martyred at the end of his life. That's what God was calling him to. Now, Isaiah is probably the most stunningly beautiful book of the Old Testament and has witnessed to billions of people since Isaiah's death. God has used it. God has brought fruit. But his experience of that kind of taking up his cross and following Jesus was horrid. How was he to find the power for that work? Isaiah 6 tells us exactly how. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple with his glory. And he was surrounded by angels, couldn't even look at him, crying, holy, holy, holy. And as soon as Isaiah laid eyes on the glory of God, he confessed his sins. It's what we do when we see ourselves in light of Christ. He said, behold, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. As if to say, you're about to call me to go be a missionary, but that's where my sin is. I can't. I don't have the the power. So God sends an angel to take a coal, a burning coal from the altar with tongs and touch Isaiah's lips in the very spot of his confession of sin is the very spot that Christ applies his mercy. And then he went with one of the most powerful and resilient ministries the world has ever known. Because it wasn't his power. It was the power of Christ given to him through looking to Jesus, confessing your sins, and receiving his mercy. And then it all just exploded. A forgiven person is so free and powerful. They don't have to work and serve in order to be good enough and accepted anymore. They can work and serve from love. And their work is no longer in their own strength because when we receive the forgiveness of Jesus, this is one of those things where I just say, this is true. How? I don't know. But when we receive Jesus's mercy, he gives into our very being the strength himself that created the universe. One of the kids asked, how did Jesus die and rise from the dead? Well, Nora's answer was great. It's power. It's the power. The power himself, the Holy Spirit, raised Christ from the dead. And that same power gets invested into you when you look to Jesus, confess your sins, and receive his mercy. That's the first example. Second example, um, and we're moving toward a conclusion here. Um, look back to John's gospel, this time chapter 21. It's the last, the last chapter. So we've just been in chapter 10 and chapter 13, and we're thinking about Peter and Jesus. And here's what's happened since then. Since Jesus said, no, Peter, you cannot follow me yet. Peter, when the stakes were highest, when everything was on the line, He denied Christ three times. What a betrayal. The one who said, I will lay down my life for you, did precisely the opposite. Essentially stabbed him in the back. So then, Jesus accomplished the exodus. The true exodus. And he freed his people from slavery to sin by dying for their sins on that cross. Peter abandoned him to go alone, and Christ went 
and paid the price. And then he rose from the dead, right? Conquering the little icy grips of death on our hearts, reconciling us to the Father. That's what's happened since we just read about Peter. Now, I'm going to read from verses 15 to 19. It's repetitive, but that's important. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, adds the author, to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was going to glorify God. And after saying this to him, Jesus looked Peter squarely in the eyes and said, Follow me. Now you can. So three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times in his restoration and reconciliation with Christ, he confesses his love for Jesus and receives marching orders. And where before Peter was unable to follow because Jesus said, I'm going through the cross and you can't do it yet. Now Jesus says, you're going through a cross too. History tells us Peter was crucified at the end of his life. And he was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to die in the same death as his savior. He was able to. He had received the power. Peter's work of following Jesus was to be a leader of the early church and to die a martyr's death. And that Peter that we get in Acts chapter 2, the difference between that Peter and the Acts, or the, the John 13 Peter, is as vast as the power of God. That's what makes up the difference. Now, there's one key detail left out. When Peter denied Jesus, the author, John, goes to great lengths to tell us there's a charcoal fire burning. So Peter's in the courtyard. Jesus is being interrogated just in the, just, it's like just in the foyer, right? And Peter's out there on a cold night warming his hands over a, a charcoal fire. That word's only used, that charcoal word's only used one other time. And it's in John 21. Jesus is on a bo- or Peter's on a boat fishing, and he looks to the shore and he sees Jesus standing over a charcoal fire, making him breakfast. He sees Jesus serving him in the very place over the same kind of fire that Peter betrayed him. Just like the coal was taken from the altar and applied to the lips of the prophet Isaiah in the very place of his confession, the very place of his betrayal. 
So now the charcoal smolders in the background as Peter receives the mercy of Jesus in the very place of his betrayal. And by doing so, he receives power from on high. So if you want to receive the power to live a gospel-shaped life of purpose and beauty, you need to know it's the greatest privilege on the planet for mere humans. And you also need to know it will not be easy. And if you still want in, there's only one way forward. You look to Jesus, confess your sins, and receive his mercy. And in the very place of your sin, that's where Christ most tenderly applies the mercy. And it might hurt for a minute. Sometimes surgery hurts for a minute. Notice it said, Peter, when was Peter grieved? Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Because it reminded him of his threefold betrayal. It will hurt to look at our sins candidly. But there is nowhere else to go for healing. Nowhere else to go. We've wounded the physician. And only the physician can stitch us up. So in that place, that's where you receive his mercy most tenderly. And in the place of your weakness, that's where his power is most profoundly displayed. Now, let me pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Lord Christ, we do, um, we do worship you uh, with joy and trembling at the same time, in our hearts at least. And we feel the privilege of your call to follow, and we thank you. And we feel the seriousness of the way of the cross. And Lord, we confess now you are worth it. And if go, we must go through suffering and trial, even persecution, to get to eternity with you on the other side, so be it. Bring it on. But don't leave us without your power. Don't leave us without your presence. And don't let us linger in our unforgiveness. Give us the strength now to bring to you our failings and our weaknesses so that we might receive mercy. We ask it for your glory. Amen.